Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Well, tonight as we're in the book of Revelation, this is session 67, entitled The Temple in Heaven. And what we've been doing, for those of you who are joining online or who are new to us in the room tonight, uh, what we've been doing in this series is we've been going through Revelation, not verse by verse, but theme by theme. And uh, one of the reasons that that's a, another way to approach the book of Revelation, and even a beneficial way, is there are so many times where the Lord repeatedly brings up the same theme over and over throughout the book, not all in one spot. Good in, uh, for instance, tonight, the subject of the temple in heaven is brought up starting, I think, in chapter 3 all the way to chapter 22. It shows up 12 times by name reference, the temple in heaven. Uh, and then dozens of more times uh, in, in references that are clearly the temple in heaven just doesn't say the word temple. And so uh, tonight as we're going to look at these uh, verses, the subject, uh, the objective is to kind of get us thinking about, as we read the book of Revelation, because again, a, a silent hope, not so silent, we say it loudly often, uh, of this study is to advertise the book of Revelation as a good thing to read. As, a, as an understandable piece of the Bible like the rest of the Bible. And the idea uh, tonight is that as you read the book of Revelation, hopefully after tonight's session, you'll be able to see the temple in the text. As you're reading through chapter 3 or chapter you know, uh, 8 or chapter 22, as you're in these various passages, you're seeing the temple in heaven because we spent some time tonight talking about it. And again, that's uh, that is, I know, a hope of the Holy Spirit through any subject that is uh, repeatedly mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's one that we're supposed to understand as part of the storyline. And so kind of like uh, a couple weeks ago, or was it last week, I forget, when we looked at the two witnesses, and we wanted to be imagining the two witnesses in the storyline of the book of Revelation, uh, of the end time drama, you want to be imagining the temple as part of the dialogue in Revelation and as part of what is occurring in the reality of heaven. So without any further delay, let's jump in here. Uh, top of page one, uh, there is a temple in heaven. Now I want to talk about the fact of that temple because that is an unusual idea uh, for those of us who have never stopped to think about it. Um, we want to rightly interpret the weightiness that heaven has a temple, and heaven was made before humans. So I want you to think about this for a second. There was a temple in heaven before there was ever an Adam and Eve, before there was ever a human race, before there was ever the capacity for human beings to run a priesthood, heaven had a temple. It's pretty interesting. I mean, that's a, a profound thought, actually, that heaven would have a temple, and that this was by God's divine design. We know that God loves people. He even became one. But even before there was people, there was a temple in heaven. That's just a really, really uh, interesting thought. Well, what are temples for? They're for worship. God designed heaven. He built heaven. And as he was uh, the architect of heaven... He put a temple right at the very center of what he does, who he is, how he runs the universe, and how heaven is laid out. He put a temple there. And temples are made for worship. And if he wasn't God, we would accuse him of narcissism. 
because he has placed worship at the very center of heaven, of eternity, of the universe, of everything. Well, not just that there is a temple and temples are made for worship, but specifically temples in the way that God sees them. Temples are made to house night and day worship. Temples, I mean, we've got it right here on the wall, Leviticus 6.13. The reality of what was established on earth when Israel became a, a private nation or, or, or a sovereign nation of its own outside of uh, Egypt's rule, the, one of the first decrees was start a, a uh, portable temple called the tabernacle, and it's got to be night and day. It's got to, the fire on the altar must never go out. It's a night and day prayer and worship reality. Well, the reason that they did that is because it was already occurring in heaven because God has a temple in heaven that's night and day. I gave you the verse there that's not one that we're uh, unfamiliar with, but I just wanted to put it there. Rome, uh, Revelation 4.8. The four living creatures with the six wings, eyes all around. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Day and night, there is a worship reality. But that worship reality isn't just happening in some far corner of heaven. It's happening in the temple, which is in heaven. There is a night and day worship temple in heaven. And that's the temple that is talked about 12 times by direct mention in the book of Revelation and dozens and dozens of other times in the book of Revelation just it's being alluded to. That's the temple. A night and day prayer and worship assembly in heaven that was built before man was. This is, I mean, that's the picture that we're getting here. So I just imagine that John, the apostle, if he didn't already have this revelation, and there's a lot of reasons to think he probably did not, I just imagine it being kind of uh, astounding, brand new information to John. He's in heaven. He's like, well, I'll be darned. There's a temple up here. Like what we had down there. There's a, there's a temple. God has a temple. I just imagine that being a somewhat shocking point to John uh, as he sees what's going on there. Well, let's look at a little bit of the description of this temple from John's point of view. First, there's incense rising before the Father here in this temple. That's what you do at, at temples that God designs. He wants incense rising night and day. We know in the New Testament that incense is prayer and worship. It's devotional songs and hymns. But one way or the other... He wants night and day incense arising. So here we've got Revelation 5, 8. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which were the, are the prayers of God's people. But look at this next verse. He was given much incense to offer. This is Revelation 8. With the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. This incense is rising to the Father. So you just want to picture this temple in heaven. It's not just an empty building. It's not like you're going to a museum. You're going to where God is tended to night and day and where there's incense rising to him. You just imagine he's smelling it. It's, he's sniffing it. And he's, he's embracing it. It's sweet incense. It's not a foul stench. It's something that was designed for the Father's nose. That's what this incense is. That's what's happening here. It's rising to him. 
So you would imagine this temple reality having that rising incense. It's also called the heavenly tabernacle. I really like that, this picture. We'll, we'll read the verse in a second. I really like this because it helps make so much sense of a portable temple called the tabernacle and that portable temple being just as legitimate as the physical temple that was built. It was portable, but it was no less the temple. What that also does is it also helps us to understand that a temple is not tied to geography in Jerusalem. It means that the temple can be other places like a house of prayer in Arlington where there is an established reality of the night and day prayer and worship being lifted to the Father that is not tied to the physical constraints of Jerusalem because we see the tabernacle that was roving around in the desert out on Sinai and everywhere else out there was not at all related to Jerusalem, was called the temple. Multiple times you can even see those terms interchangeably used when referring to that tent being called the temple. Well, look, here it is. Revelation chapter... Uh, where am I here? 15, verse 5. After this I looked, I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law. And it was opened. He says, I saw the temple. You know, the tabernacle. You know that thing that God had the Israelites establish in the desert. I saw that reality. I'm like, how did you see that? Is it a temple or is it a tent? Which is it? He says, it's the reality that matters infinitely more than the geography. The geography matters, the construction matters, those things matter, but what matters even more is the reality. And I want you to know God doesn't have a version of heaven without that reality. They didn't build that tent back in the desert so that they could have a tent and be known as the tent nation. They built that tent for night and day prayer and worship of their God. That's what the purpose of that tent was. Now, this one might throw you for a loop. I want to encourage you to go. Study this out on your own. The Ark of the Covenant is currently located in heaven. You know the one they built? Here it is, Revelation 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant's there. Now, it's just a fun little side point. I remember finding this originally and going, oh my gosh, God like raptured the box. Like, what in the way he took up the Ark of the Covenant? I was like, it has one important piece of furniture to you. And I remember going back and looking, I was like, but wait a minute, didn't, when Babylon came in and did the whole exile thing and destroyed Jerusalem, didn't they take the Ark of the Covenant? And you go back and look, I gave you the verses there. Every one of the listings of the articles that Babylon took away from the temple and absconded with to, Israel, uh, to uh, Babylon, every one of them do not include the Ark of the Covenant. Every other article that was a part of the temple worship is listed, but not the Ark of the Covenant, not once. Now, some believe, and I would understand from a human perspective why they would believe this, that the Jews just hid it real good. That they hid the Ark of the Covenant. A reasonable thought, except that Revelation chapter 11, verse 19 tells us it's in heaven. So the Jews didn't hide it, God did. You just imagine, who did he send down there to go get that thing? I mean, who yes sir the Father that day? You know, hey, hey, go get it. They're coming. Babylon's coming. Go get that glory box. Bring it up here. And they went and they got the piece of furniture and brought it upstairs. So John sees it. Just imagine John having another one of those trippy moments. 
He's a Jewish boy. He's been raised. He knows the Torah. He knows the whole thing. And he looks and he goes, oh, my gosh. He, you, you, it's here? That's awesome. You, like, have got a museum of relics. There are at least one. I mean, and, and not only that, it does make you then wonder, if one, why not two? And actually, we know there's some relics in that relic. There's some things that are inside the Ark of the Covenant. So it's not just the piece of furniture. It's also what's in the piece of furniture. And so it makes you then start to wonder, God, what else have you collected down here that was important to you over time? We don't know. Maybe nothing. This uh, temple in heaven, you want to picture this. The temple in heaven has the Ark of the Covenant in it. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's in the temple in heaven. It's also got the great altar. This is just intense. Everything that was built down here was just a shadow. It was just a shadow of what's going on upstairs. The great altar. Look at this, Revelation uh, 6, 9. I'm just going to read a bunch of these verses because they, they talk about the altar. I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed. Revelation 6, 9. Another angel came and stood at the altar. Revelation 8, 3. Six angels sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Revelation 9, 3. Then another angel, one who had power over fire, came out from the altar. Revelation 14, 8. And then finally, Revelation 16, 7. I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The, the great altar where this incense is burning is right before the Lord. It's in the temple. It's not that heaven has some interesting equivalence to what was built on earth related to the temple. The temple simply was a reflection of what was already the case in heaven. That temple was there first. The one that was built on the earth is a reflection. So, so now the real temple, the real one is upstairs. The real one is in heaven. And everything we built down here wasn't the real picture, the, the, the first one, the established one. Everything down here has been a, a, dim, a, you know, a replica produced dimly. You know, I mean, it was, it was to paint the picture, but it's not actually the real one. The real one's in heaven. The location of God's throne is in connection to this, uh, this temple. It's right before the altar. Now, this is a piece of distinction, at least for the time being, between the temples that have been built on the earth for God and the temple in heaven. The temple in heaven, God's throne is in the temple. Do you know when Jesus comes to rule and reign during the millennium, he's going to set up his throne in the temple? You want to know why? Because that's where his throne belongs. How do we know that? Because that's how it is in heaven. His throne is in the temple. Look here. Revelation 8.3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer with much incense given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which is before the throne. See, the throne is before the golden altar. The golden altar is in the temple. This is all the same reality. It's all going on there. All right, now let's look at the shifting state of this temple because some have asked, okay, well, what about this? I remember this verse that says this one thing. Let's just look at it a little bit. First, John sees the temple in heaven. And again, I, I'm just guessing he was aghast. You know, his, his jaw was gaping. Like, oh my gosh, there's a temple up here. That's just my take. I don't know. Maybe he had great clarity about that theologically. First thing that we see here, Revelation 15.5, and then also uh, Revelation 11.19. Uh, first thing we see is, 
The temple in heaven was open. It was open. The door to the temple is open. Now, I don't want you to imagine a version of heaven that's just wide open spaces only. There's rooms, there's doors. Jesus said, I'm going to go play, uh, prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not tell you. There's rooms. So you don't want to just be imagining heaven as like one big open place. There are open places. There's closed places, including the temple. The temple has doors. And this temple in heaven, John sees it opened. Now, it was open for activity, and it was also open for John to have the revelation. It's kind of a dual-fold opening. But we want to understand those doors open in a physical sense, not just the, the revelation of heaven was opened up to John. That's true. But the temple in heaven was open physically. Okay? Well, next, the temple's closed. Huh? Yeah. Look here, Revelation 15, 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels had been completed. So we need to check this out. Whether I mean, it doesn't use the word closed, but it definitely paints the picture. No one is allowed in there. A minute ago, everybody was allowed in there. Now no one's allowed in there. Everyone's forced out. This is the moment of God's greatest wrath in the history of God. This is what's referred to as the fullness of his wrath being poured out. And so as he's about to pour out that wrath, he kicks everybody out of the temple by the thickness of the glory cloud. And it, I mean, it's not accidental. It's not like that glory cloud accidentally forced everybody out. And it's like, oh man, I didn't mean for that to happen. It's, it's the father fuming, okay? It is the father about to release the greatest amount of wrath that he's ever done in human history when he releases the seven bowls of wrath, the final seven plagues. During this period of time, the temple is closed. No one can enter it until the time of the final judgments is over, okay? Now, as best as we know, this is the first time ever that that's even happened. It's like spring cleaning. It's like nobody's allowed in there. God is doing some business in the temple that actually mandate, require, no one can be in there. No one may enter. So before we were told the temple doors open, now we're told the temple's closed. What else? Revelation 21 verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. All right, so first we saw a temple. For sure it was in the city. We, I mean, we were sure about that. And the, the door was open. And then we saw that same temple in the city, and the door is closed. But now Revelation 21, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 21, 22, now we see the temple is no more in heaven. It's not that it never was. It's that it's not anymore. It's important that we understand the context of what's happening in Revelation 21, that we know where that's at in the storyline, and we understand what's going on there. John, in uh, Revelation 21, verse 3, just a little bit before that, John was being shown the events that are leading up to this. I'll read it this, read it this way. I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. That doesn't happen until after the thousand years. I want to give you just a little timeline. Jesus is coming back. 
Praise the Lord. When he comes back, he's coming to do a very specific assignment for a thousand years. He's coming to rule and reign on the earth, and if you will, fix it. There'll be a lot of fixing to do. Well, there's already a lot of moral fixing to do. But there's also going to be a whole lot of blood water that needs to be cleansed uh, by the time Jesus comes back. You know, all the sea turning to blood, all the mountains this, all the city's destruction, all the bodies laying everywhere, all the broken infrastructure, all the lack of understanding of who God is in the earth. Jesus is going to spend a thousand years establishing his Father's kingdom on the earth with him as boss. That's awesome. That is going to be the most incredible thing. The Father, however, still can't come to the planet. The Father wants to. The Father desires to dwell with man. It has always been his desire. He has been so bummed since the garden because he has not been able to dwell with man because of the issue of sin. There will still be sin during the millennium. Not by people that have resurrected bodies, but by those that don't. And there will be a whole new group of people that are going to make it through the great tribulation and they're going to be on the earth during Jesus' thousand year reign and they're still going to be sinners. It's going to be a lot easier because Satan's locked up in prison. Jesus is physically there. The Holy Spirit's moving in power, but there will still be sin. That's a real problem because the Father cannot return to the planet so long as there is still sin. Jesus is going to spend a thousand years restoring the earth, setting things right, working out holiness in the hearts of people. And finally, there's a final rebellion at the end of the thousand years. All rebellion will be washed out. And at that point, the Father comes to the physical earth first time since the Garden of Eden and he makes his home with man. This was always his intent. It was always what he wanted and it will be that way forever more forward. And we'll always remember a trillion years from now that one minute of time that God didn't dwell with man called the current present age and the millennium. That one minute. Because after a trillion years... This hour now will be history that we will be talking about. And we'll remember it, but it will be history and it will feel like a blip by comparison to the billions and trillions of years of the Lord building his kingdom and of increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. It's going to be incredible. Why do I share all that with you? Because what we're looking at here is after the millennium, the Father comes and sets up the temple in heaven, has a collision course with the planet. And now he's physically on the earth in that temple. Jesus is going to build a temple. I don't know if you knew that. Jesus himself is going to be the divine architect. He is going to be the one that oversees the building process of the most extravagant temple the earth has ever seen. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. It is the most lavish expensive, huge design temple ever. And it's there for him to rule and reign with his father. When we read Revelation 21, 22, I did not see a temple in the city. You might want to add the words any longer because John has already testified multiple times he saw a temple in that city. But now he goes, some things have shifted. The father has come and he's made his home with us. Chapter uh, 21, verse 3. But now it's chapter 21, verse 22, a few verses later. And he says, I looked around, I didn't see the temple anymore. Where is it? It's on the earth with the Father in full partnership and presence with mankind from that point forward. That is a powerful thought process. All right, well, let's look at a few things here. Jesus building this temple. Look at this. These are rich verses. I'm middle of page four. Psalm 102, 16. For the Lord will rebuild Zion and appear in his glory. 
The Lord will rebuild Zion. That's the city of Jerusalem. Starting point. Psalm 60, verse 13. The glory of Lebanon will come from you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place of my feet. This is Jesus talking. I will glorify the place my physical feet will be because my physical feet will be in Jerusalem and we're going to go get the best cedars and the best this and this and we're going to rebuild the temple. Ezekiel chapter 37. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. That has not happened yet, friends. That is a future promise. The sanctuary does not exist over there right now, but it will. My dwelling will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. The temple reality is connected to the Revelation 21 verse 3 that we just read. The Father finally reestablishing full-on communion. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. I'll dwell with them. I'll dwell in their midst. How will he do that? Through the temple. The temple will be the vehicle, if you will. Because it just said it. I'll put my sanctuary among them forever. Oh, cool. We're going to have the temple forever. Next line. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. It's going to be a forever reality. This is all related to the temple in heaven because the temple in heaven will no longer be in heaven. It will be in, in a in the most dynamic convergence of worlds you can possibly imagine, the heavenly temple and the earthly temple are going to merge, and the Father is going to be here on the earth forever. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. He's going to rebuild that temple in the millennium. It's going to be pretty awesome. All right, well... If you've got the temple on earth and you've got the Father on earth, heaven no longer needs a temple. Amen. There's going to be a new functional priesthood that we want to understand here. Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. <coughs> Ezekiel 44. I know I'm outside of the book of Revelation right now, and this is a Revelation study. But for us to understand what's happening with the temple in heaven that we're reading about, we need to understand these details. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. We know that's Jesus. And he will branch out from this place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Jesus will build the temple. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, just in case you were confused and thought he was saying something else. And he will be clothed with majesty. Oh, my goodness, but he's not just going to just be the king or just be the, uh, the temple builder. It says, and he will sit and rule on his throne. That throne is going to be right there in the midst of the temple. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. Jesus will be king. Jesus will be high priest. We're talking about a new priesthood where Jesus is the high priest in functional reality on a Tuesday. No longer in heaven merely. On earth, he will be the functioning priest, a king on a throne. That's what we're looking at here. The Levitical priests, who are the descendants of Zadok, who guarded my sanctuary when the Israelites went astray from me, they are to come near to minister before me. They alone are to come near to my table to minister before me and serve me as guards. God is going to reestablish a priesthood 
under Jesus as high priest on the earth in the millennium. And he's only going to pick the most faithful of priests to be a part of that eternal priesthood or that, uh, that earthly priesthood in the millennial kingdom and beyond. He's going to reestablish the priesthood for real. Jesus is the high priest. We know that. Uh, Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Jesus is a high priest. You know, there are some things, I don't know if you guys have ever had somebody prophesy over you about your future. They say, you're going to be a business owner. You're going to use this. The Lord's going to use you in the nations. You're going to do this. Those things are true about you, but they haven't acted out yet. Those things are absolutely the reality of who you are and how God sees you, yet you've never done it. There are things about Jesus being high priest he has never done once, and he will. He will be on the earth operating as a high priest like you think of when you think high priest. He'll be doing that. It just so happens he's also God and he's also the king. I mean, this is the most dynamic God-man we could possibly imagine. He's got a lot going on and an infinite capacity. He is a high priest, and he will operate as a high priest in ways he has not yet ever been able to do because of the distance between heaven and earth. There's things that he's not done. He's never been orchestrating in person a priesthood. He's never been receiving that praise from People on the earth where he's face to face with them before. He's never been operating on the earth doing the work of the high priest for his father on the earth in that way. He will. He will. And then the father makes his home on earth. I gave you the Revelation 21.3 again. This is what happens at the tail end of all these events is the father is making his home on the earth. And that's what's occurring with this temple. It's what's changing the situation. All right, I'm going to go pretty quickly through these next couple of parts so that we can get to our uh, time of discussion. Future activity of the temple. Going back to Revelation. First thing, one of the most prestigious honors that Christ will award to some small portion of the body of Christ, not to everyone, to some small portion is the position and the grace to be a a permanent fixture in the temple of God. Look what this says. Revelation 3. To the one who is victorious, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Don't mince words. It says never again will they leave it. They won't leave it again. Will they leave it? No, they won't leave it again. Never. Well, that's not going to be everybody. That's going to be those that are victorious in a very specific way. It is a very small part. But they're pillars forever, meaning the temple must exist forever. Because how could you be a pillar in the temple if a temple doesn't exist? And it's heaven's temple. Well, it will. And they will. Look here at uh, bottom of page 5, top of page 6. Those serving in the temple night and day. Look at Revelation uh, 7.15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him night and day in his temple. This is talking about humans. This isn't angels. This is those that come up out of the great tribulation. This is now a corporate priesthood given the opportunity to minister night and day. Now, I will say this. The way that the priesthood operated, and it's important that we know these details so that we don't misinterpret verses like this. 
The priesthood was a night and day priesthood. The fire on the altar must not go out. But that doesn't mean every single priest, 24 hours a day, had to keep their eyes open and all of them had to stand right there all the time, all of them. No, they took turns. They took shifts. And so the corporate mandate, the fire on the altar must not go out, was, uh, was completed by a people, by a priesthood, not by a person. Why does that matter? Because when it says they are there to serve God day and night in his temple, it's a corporate they. This entire group that comes up out of the great tribulation, they are now the priesthood that will serve God in the temple night and day. But that doesn't mean that they will never leave because we were already told that's a select group. This group will. They'll have other assignments. They'll be doing things. But they're there to serve him night and day in his temple. And then there's the great multitude worshiping on the sea glass like crystal. I don't have time to go into it. I'm going to keep going. All right. The temple is the central hub of angelic activity. Again, I just want us to see this. <coughs> These are all book of Revelation verses. Book of Revelation verses about the temple. First one, Revelation 14, 15 through 18. The central hub of activity of heaven is related to this temple. Look what it says. Another angel came out of the temple. A couple verses later, another angel came out of the temple. Another verse later, still another angel who had charge of the fire came to the altar or came from the altar. The altar's in the temple. You got three angels here in about four verses that are coming from the temple to do the activity of God. That's because it's the central point of God's government right there at the temple. That's where God is giving out the marching orders that are running the universe. That's where the night and day four living creatures, that's where all of it's happening in the temple of God. God is ruling the universe from a temple. I just want all of you in this room that have one two-hour prayer meeting a week going on here in this room, I want you to understand something. The God of the universe chooses to run his government and to run the universe from a night and day prayer furnace. He chooses to run the universe from a temple. That's how he does it. It is the central point of activity in heaven. Anything that happens starts at that temple. The seven angels that have the trumpets. Out of the temple came the seven angels. Uh, uh, letter C, or number C. Letter. Letter is, yeah, not a number. Uh, Revelation 16.1. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go do this and that. They're given their marching orders from the temple. Revelation 16, 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done, it is finished, it is complete. The wrath of God is now over. It's from the temple that the marching orders are constantly coming. This temple thing is a big deal to God. And we won't go into it, I'll just give it to you there. There's several verses that talk about the lightning of God. Just another one of those word picture things you want to see. When you're thinking about this temple in heaven, you want to imagine it being lit up often by lightning that's coming out of God's presence. And I'll just leave it there and you can read that later if you want to. All right, we're going to break up into groups. Look how many groups we got tonight. We're going to go into our time of group question. And what I'm going to do is uh, I'll let you each uh, say your question aloud and then I'll repeat it back so that those that are watching online can hear the question. Otherwise, they would not know what it is that you asked. And I would just be saying random words. So, uh, Luke, why don't we start with you?
Yeah. So uh, the the question was uh, a couple of times uh, we've got the the statement of the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Uh, it happened in the tabernacle, and then it also happened in the temple uh, at the temple dedication. And so the question is: so if God's glory came and filled the temple uh, in that uh, moment. Uh, is that like what's going to happen, or, or how does that compare to what's going to happen when the Father comes and He dwells uh, among people? So the Father, He's always pressing the limits of how much human interaction He can get by with, okay, uh, legally, on legal grounds, all right? Uh, and He very much, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's a kid on his birthday waking up, and it's like he just wants his birthday party, you know what I mean? He's, he's all excited. The Father is constantly after the fullness of connection with mankind. He is constantly after that. And so even when we experience those brief seasons of revival throughout history, uh, throughout uh, modern history, it's times when his presence is drawing near, though still so far from fullness. I mean, it couldn't even be partly compared to fullness. It's... It is so small by comparison. So what we actually need to be thinking is every cool thing we've ever heard of, every manifestation of the Holy Spirit we've ever heard of, any time the Father's expressing desire to dwell with man, any moment that he filled the temple with his glory, any one of those moments, we need to be thinking about this question. How much bigger is it when the full manifestation of the, of the presence of God is dwelling among man with no contention. That is a really, really big, high and lofty thing. And I'll just say it this way. This was always the mystery of God, that his presence would dwell with fullness with man who was created. The uncreated God to dwell with man. It is actually what heaven's all about. It's actually what the next age is all about. It's actually all about eternity. The fullness of God's purpose was this mystery. And it's referred to as a mystery multiple times in the New Testament. Paul talks about the mystery of heaven and earth coming together of this age and the next meeting. And it's all related to this glorious subject of the Father coming and dwelling in fullness with people on the earth. And so it's a powerful question. So how do they compare? They don't compare at all. We're, we're talking about fullness versus level one. I mean, it, and thank you, God, that you gave us level one twice. We got it at the temple, and we got it in the tabernacle. We saw it, you know, and that we got level point zero 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 five uh, in, in revivals a couple of times, you know. But what about when the fullness of God comes to dwell with man, where he, it, he with his unrestrained glory, you know, when God visits anybody, says anything, does anything now, he has to veil so much of his glory or he'd kill you. But it's a sin issue because you were created in his image. So if everything is in right standing, you can bear the fullness of the glory of God. But when you've got sin and when sin is in the equation, you can't. So that's the issue, the, bar the barrier. I mean, Adam and Eve were jumping around naked. And there was, they never even thought about it. Just like, here, we're just with God. Bearing the fullness of his glory. And it was not even an issue. They didn't even know that, that like you couldn't do that until sin entered the picture. So the entire end time drama is about the removal of sin so we can get back to real life called God with us, dwelling amongst us. He be our God, we be his people. Okay, great question. Great question. All right, Danny.
So first thing I want to say that's an important detail that we, we want to, uh, and I, I'm hearing this question very much coming from the right perspective that I'm about to paint, but I just want to help us as we interpret the Bible. There are many times the Word of God says this, and the Word of God says this, and in our finite minds we go, those two things cannot possibly coexist, and we are wrong. <laughs> Every time we are wrong. And it's really good to know that from the start. You are wrong. Because God can't say this and this and them not be able to coexist and them somehow be like God's confused and schizo. Like he knows what he's doing. So what instead is we need to go on the journey of trying to understand how do these, these two things that seem impossibly uh, impossible to combine, how do these two things actually paint two sides of the same equation? How do these two things actually bring harmony to understanding the fullness of a scenario instead of, no, no, I'm in the right camp. No, no, I'm in the left camp. Both of you are wrong. It's right and left. It's always both whenever there's two things that seem conflicting. So I do not have an easy answer to you on that. But one thing I can tell you is it is both because there's clearly a temple and there's clearly John saying there's no temple and then there's the mystery and I... I didn't point to the Revelation uh, 22, no, Revelation 21, uh, 22 verse. I didn't read it, if you noticed earlier. I just pointed to a separate reality that helps answer it. Because what Revelation 21, 22 says is, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So whatever answer we come up with, isn't John saying there is no temple? He's saying, I didn't see one because what I was seeing was the fullness and the completion of it. See, there's so many times in the word that we're used to level one or let's say stage one. We're used to stage one in a process because we don't understand it's a 10-stage process and the fullness was always level 10. That was always the plan. We're just used to in our experience stage one and we've got a little bit of a vision for stage two. The fullness of God from the very beginning was to dwell with man. That's the purpose of the created order, was for God to dwell with man. That's what the purpose of the temple was. Remember the reason God set the Israelites out in the desert? He said, hey, build me a tent. And then he said, build me a temple. It was all related to getting that fullness of, of connectedness as much as could be between God and man. Again, him trying to constantly cheat the system. So how is it that these two things uh, are are in, a, uh, in an alignment. There is some mystery to it. And you gotta, you got to journey it. But I want to encourage you, don't pick a side. That is the incorrect way to approach this. You need to be looking for reconciliation. You need to be looking for, how do these two things go together? And I'll give you a couple of a little hints for you to go on the journey. One, God's presence on the earth, has never, he's never dwelt with man since the garden. And it's going to happen at the same time frame that John says, I didn't see a temple any longer. Second, the answer to the question directly is from Revelation 21, 22. I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So there's something wrapped up in this mystery of the Lamb and the Lord God Almighty are the temple. Notice, did you, did you catch the contradiction? There was no temple. Oh, yeah, there was one. It was God and the Lamb. You see that? So it's not there is no temple. It's that there's, there's some things shifting. There's some things, there's some realities that are, that are going to change. Well, we also know the reality is going to change because heaven is going to come and physically rest on the planet after the millennial period. Above it for a thousand years, on it 
permanently. Heaven on earth physically. That's how this all is really related. Now, I will tell you this. I'm not going to spend any more time answering that because we're going to spend a number of sessions when we get to this portion of, uh, of, of Scripture, Revelation, call it 21, 22. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about all those things. So this was a great little teaser. Go on the journey. Don't pick sides. All right. Uh, Andy, did we already get you? Andy. Okay, so uh, the, if you're not familiar with this, this is an interesting idea. He's the, uh, the temple that we just talked about Jesus is going to build in the millennium, it's found in Ezekiel 40 through 48, and there are great details. I mean, there's, I, I don't know that there's too many things in the whole Bible that there's that much detail about. I mean, eight chapters line upon line about a building and everything related to it. Part of that building, part of that infrastructure is a priesthood that is going to offer animal sacrifices. And they're going to do that. And that's really going to happen. And whether you like that or not doesn't really matter. It's going to happen. So then Andy's going, okay, well, but we know from uh, Hebrews and a bunch of other places that the blood of Jesus made the permanent sacrifice and no longer does the blood of an animal offer atonement for sin. So what does that blood do? Well, we also want to recognize this. The concept of a sacrifice, let's just extract the idea of an animal for a minute and let's talk about tithing, okay? When you tithe, when you sacrifice 10% of your money, okay, that is a gift to the Lord that costs you something. It's costly. It's a sacrifice. It's something that was yours and you're going, you know what, God, I honor you and I honor what you've said. I honor the order you've put into place. I honor the fact that for some reason you want money. I don't know. It's just green paper. I don't know how that could be valuable to you. seems like it'd be me, doing me better than it would do you. But somehow you say this sacrifice is a good thing. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to trust you with it. Think about that same thought process related to the sacrificial system in the, the next age related to the millennial worship. It's part of the worship it's not about atoning for sin that's already been done. There's no atonement that can be made for with the blood of animals. That's over. However, sacrifice is still sacrifice. It is a gift to the Lord, and it's an order that he's put into place. And not only that, let's always remember Jews are the apple of God's eye. Israel is God's people, and God is the one that told Israel to put into place the sacrificial system as a way to remember him, as a way to think on him, as a way to connect the activities of their lives to who he is and what he's about and to what he wants. And all of those things still have place. And so all of that is going to be happening in a Jewish-run Jerusalem temple in Jerusalem in the next age. So hopefully that's a starting point. Uh, you guys. Oh, boy. Okay, so is the New Jerusalem and the temple in heaven, is it one and the same? Sort of. Um, 
So there is the entire city of the New Jerusalem is God's holy habitation. Okay? So in one sense, the entire city, which is about the size of the moon if the moon were a square, a rect uh, box, okay? It's enormous. The, 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 the glory box would just fit inside of the moon, all right? Now, the, in, in one sense, the city of Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, is the temple of God because the entire thing is laid out for his glory, for his purposes. Whatever happens there emanates out. There's a river that starts from his throne, that starts from his being, that flows throughout the whole city. So anything that happens in the very center point then flows out to the rest of the city. But God is also very much into this thought process of the, whole, the most holy place, the holy place, and the outer courts. Is very much the way that God thinks. And so you want to imagine the most holy place is this temple room around the throne. You could call it the throne room. Call that the most holy place. Call all of heaven the holy place and call the earth the outer courts. Because the way that the Lord is going to operate in the next age is very similar to the pattern that he set up. So in, in one sense, all of creation is God's uh, you know, uh, uh, temple. In one, you know, the most broad sense. Because where can you go from his presence? You know, up, down, left, right. But in the most specific sense, there is a throne room in heaven that is the operational, functional temple of God uh, in, uh, the, uh, in the city. Okay, uh, worship leader, team, whoever it is, come on up. Hope we have that figured out. Oh, we do. Glorious. Thanks. Wonderful. Um, great questions, guys. And listen, we will, honestly, upon review... I think I probably should have put this session along with Revelation 21 and 22 when we got there. I think it was maybe a little bit premature, so I just want to apologize for that because we've, we're talking about a subject matter that we're not going to return to for quite some time, uh, but we'll be making reference back to this one. So we will cover a lot of uh, that when we get to Revelation 21 and 22. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayerroomdfw.com. Thank you.